0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 125. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guests on the show are working together to empower local entrepreneurs and bring solar power to the buffer zone communities of Nepal. Maura Haynes is the co-founder and board chair of Empowered by Light, and Anya Chernev is the co-founder and executive director of Empower Generation. These two organizations have come together to implement a project that will provide solar power to ranger stations within Chitwa National Park in Nepal. These rangers are on the front lines of protecting wildlife from poaching, which is a serious problem in this unique national park. But Empowered by Light and Empower Generation are doing a lot more than just assisting park rangers in protecting wildlife. They are empowering local entrepreneurs and demonstrating the ability of solar power technology to leapfrog fossil fuel infrastructure in the developing world.
1: Um, hi, I'm Anya Cherneth, and I am the co founder and executive director of Empower Generation. Empower Generation is a social enterprise. Um, that empowers rural women living in energy-poor communities to um, own and operate their own clean energy distribution business. Um, We currently work in Nepal, and we have a a network of 20 uh, women-led and women-owned businesses that have collectively distributed over um, 50,000 clean energy products um, in their rural communities in Nepal. Um, We provide women training, um, mentorship, marketing support, and uh, uh, access to clean energy products, as well as uh, financing to get their business off the ground.
2: I'm Mara Haynes. I am co-founder and interim executive director of Empowered by Light. We're a nonprofit foundation that aims to improve lives and the environment with renewable energy technologies And we first started um, by distributing individual solar-powered LED lights into a very remote um, area of Zambia in sub-Saharan Africa. And since then, we have um, started developing microgrids um, of varying sizes one, is, one that we're currently working on is as large as 300 kilowatts, but we've also done ones that are about 1.2 kilowatts. So we're doing microgrids um, around the world now, um, in Africa, in Zambia, Congo, um, where I work in Nepal, and we've done a number of projects in support of uh, indigenous communities in the Amazon basin, uh, working in collaboration with uh, Amazon Watch and Greenpeace Brazil.
0: Maybe you guys can... T- Tell me the story of, of how your two organizations came together. How did the process come about um, to, to bring about this, this collaborative effort?
1: So Empowered by Light and Empower Generation um, started discussing opportunities to collaborate um, last year. The director, executive director of Empowered by Light at the time, um, Alyssa Newman, had come to Nepal Um, on a trip, a fundraising and donor trip around um, relief after the earthquake. Um, And I had met her on that trip. Um, And we discussed opportunities uh, to get our organizations to collaborate um, following that trip. And and this is what came out of it.
2: Yeah. and, And in general, Empowered by Light, wherever possible, looks for a local partner on the ground we just think that's essential for um, the success of our projects someone that really understands the lay of the land both literally and, and figuratively you know that can help us um just with you know whatever community we're going to be working with um in that other country um can help us sometimes also um you know, in this case, Empower Generation isn't the local solar installer, but they helped us identify local solar installers to work with um, to do these projects. So we're, we're always looking for collaborative efforts. We just feel it really makes sense to share, you know, share the people, the knowledge, um, and, and just have greater impact through collaboration.
0: Let's delve a little bit into the details of this specific project to build solar panels on ranger stations in in Chitwan National Park.
2: The park is, you know, home to a number of critically endangered species, and um, it's, you know— uh, one of our one of Empowered by Light's focus is, is on empowering the protectors. So, you know, we looked at a way to help provide power to the rangers that are trying to protect um, these critically endangered um, species within the park. Um, so last year we did a ranger station, um, provided solar with battery storage for a ranger station, but we also put solar on two tourist towers in the park. And those tourist towers are places where, um, for example, you and I could go and for a very small amount of money, we can spend the night there and have an incredible opportunity to see wildlife that may only be visible at night. And so it's really for kind of the eco ecotourism um, sector, this is just really an incredible opportunity for people to be there, to be safe, because it's basically like a giant treehouse. So you're up high off the ground, you're kept safe from wild animals, you know, but with the solar power, you now have lights and fans and running water Um you know, so it makes for um, a comfortable experience. Um, you're not completely roughing it out there, and and the tourist tower um, generates income that supports the um, buffer zone community that surrounds Chitwan National Park. So we really felt that these projects. Um, so now we're this fall we're looking at doing a second ranger station. Um, that these projects are really um, supporting, empowering the protectors that are that are. Um, that are trying to protect these critically endangered species, but also um, empowering the communities that are living in this really critical region called the buffer zone where, um, you know, where you're at potentially at conflict with the wildlife and we're just trying to support those communities through our work.
1: Yeah. And uh, second, everything that Maura said, and then just to provide a little bit of a wider context Um, So Nepal is one of the least developed countries in the world. It's, I think, around the 10th poorest country in the world. Um, And it has very little economic opportunities or industry. Um, The main and largest industry in the country is tourism. And um, Chitwan National Park, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, is the second uh, most popular tourist destination in Nepal after Mount Everest um, and the Himalayas. Um, so it's a very, um, important part of Nepal's, um, livelihood of economic development. And like Maura mentioned, there are all these complicated issues, um, within the park and within the buffer zone communities that live in the park, um, in terms of preserving natural resources, protecting wildlife, um, and also creating, um, a good infrastructure for sustainable ecotourism, um, sustainable livelihoods uh, for the people that are living in the, the buffer zone community. So that's why um, this is a really important part, our place um, that that really could use um, some intervention and solar makes a big impact, not only allowing the rangers who are living in the park, Um, totally isolated, um, provides them a little bit of communication and comfort and ability to do their job better, protecting wildlife. Um, But it also creates opportunities for the buffer zone communities um, to practice sustainable ecotourism um, and um, brings people like us the opportunity to get to see some of the um, rarest species in the world uh, without making a negative impact on them
0: what type of conflict is occurring in this particular area is poaching a big problem there I, I guess I'm just looking for like a little bit more specifics about like sort of the nature of the conflict that um, you're hoping to help resolve with this project
1: poaching is the number one of um, issue that that by electrifying the the ranger stations were helping we're hoping to help Um, Resolve. And it is a practice that is done mostly for um, like the former, you know, selling um, endangered wildlife parts on the um, on the international market. It's not that people are like um, killing animals for meat or anything, but it's it's more um, that they are being paid by uh, foreign poachers. Um, to go in and um, and and poach rhinos for their horns or um, various other things like that. Um, and uh, in, actually, we just heard that a rhino had been poached about a month ago, um, which is the first time a rhino had been killed in the park for for a few years. So it's definitely a major issue. Um, and uh, we were just told that. You know, local people and living in the buffer zone, because they don't have um, any other opportunities or resources or, or ways to earn an income, poaching becomes very attractive for them. Um, and so that's uh, one of the reasons why we're focusing on the buffer zone communities and trying to um, create entrepreneurship and opportunities to earn income and to develop their their lives and their livelihoods in a more sustainable way so that poaching is no longer such a big draw. And then um the kind of issues that the buffer zone community are struggling with is just basically like creating a natural bound ba- or living in a happy harmony with the uh, wildlife in the park. So um the communities in the buffer zone are not supposed to use the resources in the park. Um such as firewood or, or anything, but they live inside the park. So that can be really a difficult struggle for them. And it's also difficult for them to keep wildlife out of, out from stealing their grain or um, trampling their fields or attacking them. Um, So creating that like perfect harmony between um, humans and wildlife is, is, Something that the buffer zone committee is uh, constantly struggling and working towards, and um, the income that is generated from the tourist towers goes towards programs um, that help them in in that balance or that harmony.
2: Right, and Matt, just to add on to that, um, you know, I think it, Anya, correct me if it was wrong, it was last year that an elephant um, had trampled and killed um, a young woman in in the park. So, you know, so the human wildlife um, issue is very real. I think the, you know, the people, the communities in the buffer zone really are living in a kind of a delicate balance. And I think for the most part, you know, they understand that um but it is a delicate balance and so Empowered by Light and Empowered by Our Generation are hoping to find ways to um to strengthen that. So it's I guess less delicate. So in addition to you know to helping the Rangers so they can do their jobs better, so they can stay safer because now they have better lighting. It keeps them safer at night around their station. You know, they are able to charge their um, cell phones and their radios and they just can communicate better with each other and with park authorities, etc. But then also, you know, the tourist towers generating income, which goes right back to the buffer zone community so that it can strengthen those communities so that those... Um, members of the communities are less likely to, um, yeah, to take resources from the park, and the money can also go to build um, protective fencing for communities, so they can't, you know. So there's less um, risk of uh, of injury or death um, from from some of the larger animals, um, but also, as Anya mentioned, just protecting, um, you know, the food supplies for the communities. You know, because the elephants, elephants are extremely smart animals and they know just how to find, you know, a sack of rice, um, for example. And so it, it can just be, you know, helping us to you know, build that protective fencing. And we're also looking at other projects that we might do in the future um, to provide other jobs, um, other um, means of income for those communities using uh, renewable energy power.
0: You're using this term uh, buffer zone a lot. What is the, the buffer zone really? And like, wh- where does this name come from? I mean, is it called the buffer zone because these communities are sort of at the buffer between like this national park area and the areas outside the park? Or is this like a buffer zone between different sort of ecological areas? Uh, maybe you can just explain that uh, a little bit more.
1: Sure. And I think that um, the... the the film that was produced about the work, uh, the buffer zone, it, it really hits on the fact that there's, you know, there's one meaning to the buffer zone that, uh, the reason why we call this area, the buffer zone is because that is what it's called, um, in turn in Nepal. Um, within these communities, it is the like geographical area between the, um, you know, develop between the national park and, um, and the, the rest of Nepal basically. Um, and it, in this area, it is like, you know, it's half, par- it's pretty, it's considered park, but people are living there. Um, it's, con- it's where people have lived. Um, there's no way to like displace these communities because the national parks borderlines, um, you know, have swallowed up their, their, villages or, or where they live. Um, but there also are so many other meanings to the buffer zone. It's like an ecological, um, area where, biodiversity and different types of species are are commingling it's an area where like humans and wildlife are trying to co- co- coexist and and live in some sort of harmony so there, there are all these different dynamics that are going on um but the buffer zone is called the buffer zone because that is the actual like name for this area around the park and um it's called that by a locally elected committee that's called the Buffer Zone Committee um, that is responsible for managing um, both the parks resources and the um, human communities that are living in the buffer zone.
0: We see these conflicts right between wildlife and human communities all over the globe, right? And And I mean, these days, a lot of those conflicts, At the heart of a lot of them is the illegal wildlife trade. And it sounds like in this situation, you know, that's not all of it. There is human-wildlife conflict that uh, doesn't fall into that category. And I just think it's important to talk about the economics behind that, right? The economics that are driving that. And the fact that uh, that aspect of the conflict, it's occurring because there is an economic opportunity involved in going out and killing wildlife in order to harvest these products that can be sold for relatively large sums of money. So I can only assume that, that that's something that is sort of at the forefront of your minds as you're developing this project, right? Because it's not just about providing clean energy for these communities. There's also sort of the secondary benefits of the economic opportunities that that provides, right?
2: Well, absolutely, Matt. I mean, we could have a whole um, multiple, like several hour conversation about, how you reduce the trade, um, illegal trade in wildlife, in um, endangered wildlife. I mean, that's really, you know, I mean, a lot of people would argue that, you know, for that you really have to go after reducing the demand. You know, there's no way you can have enough rangers patrolling, enough, high-tech equipment, you know, to help them in their fight against poachers. So, I mean, that, that's a very, um, very involved uh, discussion. But I really think that uh, Anya and I feel that if we can provide enough economic opportunity um, to those buffer zone communities, they are, they will be less likely to poach. So if you look across, you know, any area where um, poaching of, um, illegal poaching of wildlife is happening, then... You know, it's typically because people um, are, you know, it's extremely poor areas and people are getting a lot of money, um, even though it's actually very dangerous um, to poach some of these animals, um, depending on your resources, you know, but you could feed your family for a year or more even. So, you know, if we can bolster those communities, if we can help them um, really better that balance, that delicate balance that they have living in that space... Um, and they can really understand the value that that wildlife brings to them. So if they see, oh, these tourist towers are generating income and that income is going to, you know, help my family and help support my local school and my local community, um, then they obviously put more value on the wildlife to be living than to be dead. And so it's really just about you know, giving them economic opportunities to to improve their lives and just to reduce the likelihood that, that they will want to poach.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with um, Maura. And uh, that, I mean, this is why Empower Generation does the work that we do. Um it all boils down to um, poverty. And when uh, families or communities are living within poverty, their lack of options, um, creates opportunities for exploitation. And whether that is, um, you know, that women are forced into situations where they find themselves trafficked, or um, people have to migrate abroad in search of work and end up in an exploitative situation, or they are forced to go and poach um, in the national park, it's all the same thing when you don't have a lot, when you don't have any options, um, making a choice to do something, um, is not actually a, to do something to earn money for your family is not really a choice at all. And so, um, all the work that empower generation does and empowered by light is doing and the work that we're doing together is to create choice and space and dignity, uh, within these communities so that, um, these types of practices are no longer the only option.
0: I really appreciate the work that both of you and both your organizations are doing because that's a piece of this puzzle towards solving the ultimate problem that I think often gets missed, you know, in sort of a lot of the portrayals of these illegal wildlife trade issues. Um, you know, often the, the poachers, it's its easy to demonize those people, right? Yeah. Um, and people forget yeah. that, like, you know, in most situations, like they're not; these people don't feel like they're really being provided a, a choice. Exactly. So, have either you guys uh, been to the buffer zone? Have you spent time in this area?
1: On uh, yes, yeah, I've been there a lot, um, many, many times. Um, the, this is actually where um, my co-founder and business partner, Sita Adikari, is from and where I met her. Um and the we started our work in the buffer zone. Um we've now branched out throughout the country, but um it's always a special place for us and we're so happy to be able to partner with organization like Empowered by Lay to to do some meaningful projects in the buffer zone communities. Um we are not like large solar installers. Um we don't usually do That type of project. So it's been so incredible um, to be able to partner with Empowered by Light and bring these types of big installations that make a big, a big impact on the buffer zone community um, through this project. But yeah, I was on the last trip um, with 10 volunteers and we spent... Uh, Two days in the national park doing an installation and overnight in the tourist tower and we're watching rhinos um, right next to us at their in having their evening meal and evening bath and it was just an incredible experience. Just having these tourist towers and doing these projects and being able to be a tourist in the national park in a different way um, was so unique and so inspiring. Um, And I'm so excited to go back and, and do more of these types of projects.
0: I mean, Anya, maybe you can tell the story behind your first trip there. I mean, uh, what brought you to this region initially? And was it that first trip that sort of led to, you know, you meeting the the co-founder of your organization and, and, and launching this project?
1: Yeah. Um, so I had previous, this was, uh, six years ago or so, feels like ages ago, um, I had had this idea I've been working in uh, women's rights especially around the issues of human trafficking um, sex slavery and, and uh, decided that I wanted to um, rather than more I put it in really eloquently it's always a demand supply and demand um, kind of situation in these in on these issues and I was working a lot on the demand side and trying to create awareness about um, women and why they were in these types situations and and try to stem the demand. And I realized that I wanted to take a market-based approach um, to the supply side and create opportunities for women, um, not only to earn income in their local communities so that they wouldn't be vulnerable to exploitation or to taking these types of risks uh, for jobs abroad, um, but also um, to create Uh, leadership opportunities in fields that are not necessarily considered women's um, fields such as energy um, so that the uh, uh, a gender paradigm shift could occur within the communities and um, women could be seen as providers of development tools for the entire community and not just for themselves which would hopefully um, create more gender uh, equality or gender parity and um I had this idea for a, for a while. I realized that there was over a billion people around the world that didn't have access to electricity and there was a great market opportunity to provide um, through solar power and other types of alternative energy, um, provide them this type of energy. And I thought, well, what if we trained women women, and supported women to start businesses that provided these this energy access um, in their communities? Um, that seemed like the perfect fit in terms of uh, the goals that I was trying to achieve. And um, I, my husband and I went on what we call like a learning tour um, before we were moving to the Netherlands just to explore in South and Southeast Asia what was going on in, in the fields of alternative energy, women's empowerment, women's rights, human trafficking, basically anything under the sun that was at all relative to see if this idea had any legs or made any sense. And um, we went to Nepal and I went on a trip to Chitwan National Park and I was um, visiting a community library inside of the buffer zone um and learning about a women's microfinance group that was very successful um and uh was told about how women were you know saving about 5 cents a month and um but that the the microfinance organization had grown just from this small savings to an operating budget of over $200,000. And they had a 99% repayment rate and it was working really well. And, um, the woman who was telling me about, um, this microfinance cooperative or the savings and credit cooperative that she'd started is my business partner. So I met her, um, on that trip while she was telling me about this great, um, microfinance program that she'd started within the buffer zone um, to help women um, be economically independent. And um, so that's it kind of like the universe put us together. Uh, She was sitting there telling me about how she really loved the work that she was doing, but it was unpaid. And her real dream was to start a business and employ at least 100 women. And so I thought, wow, well, I have this business idea um let's see if we can like put our passions together and uh this is how empower generation started
0: fantastic so it began right in that buffer zone but you you mentioned that you guys have spread uh uh, much wider throughout the country of nepal so where are you guys at like big picture you know where is the organization at, at at this point
1: um so at this point we have uh 20 businesses that are across the country that we support and um up until this point, they've distributed mostly solar lanterns and small solar products um, for communities that do have access to the electric grid. But because the electric grid was so unreliable, they needed some sort of backup. Um, and that situation has changed now. Um, earlier this year, the grid got much more reliable, and now there's only a few communities, like the bu- like some of the communities in the buffer zone, just about eight million out of the thirty million people in Nepal that don't have access to electricity. Um, so now we're really focusing on ensuring that these businesses that no longer can necessarily sell solar product, solar lanterns as a good product, um, have still have a good market and have good products that are. Fitting their community's needs. So we are focusing on, um, helping our entrepreneurs sell, um, new types of technologies like clean cook stoves and, um, gas, um, and, and induction stoves, as well as, um, pay-as-you-go solar home system, So, offering customers a whole energy solution for their home, um, similar to the type of systems that we we use in the States um, to to convince them to go solar. Um, And the goal for us is really just to... um, enable these amazing women, give them a platform, um, for them to reach their full potential, um, and help them be strong business leaders in their communities. And, and we're really happy about the way that it's turning out. Um, we just, there was just a national election in Nepal and, um, 10 out of our 20 entrepreneurs were uh, nominated or participated in their local elections. Um, and one of them won. Per seat, so we're we're really really happy to see these types of like leadership and empowerment um, impacts coming out of the work that we're doing.
0: So, Mora, you are are one of the co-founders of, of Empowered by Light. What's your creation story? You know, what inspired you to uh, uh, to found this organization?
2: Uh, that's pretty straightforward. My husband has worked in the renewable energy space for um, for a long time now, and. Was just one of those moments, um, probably connected to a milestone in our ages, I suppose. Suppose also, and then we just got to thinking, you know, we want to have some real impact, and we wanted it to be around renewable energy, and, and the likely thing was solar. Um, And we said, let's, you know, originally it started as something very small. Let's just, you know, have one of our large dinner parties and tap our network and we'll raise money and we will distribute, um, you know, some solar lights to a very, very poor and remote um, part of Africa in in some country or another. And, you know, we'd really been inspired by, um, it was a New York Times article Um, actually highlighting um, someone in Kenya who had been distributing um, solar lanterns um, into very poor communities. Um, And we were seeing what a a huge impact that was having. And so he said, well, let's do something similar and let's not do it in Kenya. And we ended up in Zambia. It's just one of those folks. We ended up, you know, knowing um, several people on the ground and, and several organizations. And we knew it was also a safe country. Um, so that was also one of the reasons um, for for choosing Zambia, but that's you know how it initially got started, and then you know what became just oh let's just distribute a few thousand solar lanterns to schools became wait a second we think that um, you know that the real solution to energy access is around microgrids, and so that's when um, on one of the trips um, some of our our team. Um, went and visited Sioma High School in um, the western province of Zambia. And it's like a boarding school where children will walk for days to get there, and then they'll stay there until there's like a holiday break. So it serves um, over 600 students, and they have um, almost 30 buildings on their campus, you know, including the, the student housing, the teacher housing, the classrooms, the dining hall, etc. And we saw that these children who... I mean everyone there in sub-Saharan Africa they understand that education is one of the key ways, if not the most important way that they can really improve their lives um, improve their existence and you know there's trying to study and they did have power they had three old um really inefficient diesel generators, and you they were literally sitting in the classroom you know with a cloud of you know smoke going by, and that you know, that noise, trying to study. And then and then those diesel generators, because just the cost of them and how they operated, they only had light until till quite early in the evening. So they weren't able to study um, late into the evening. They didn't have good quality lighting. So we upgraded all their lighting. We put in a 24 kilowatt um, uh, solar and energy storage system. so it's one hundred and six solar panels with um, with battery storage um, that has its own air conditioning because it's out there in the middle of uh, the Zambian um, you know very dry, hot area of Zambia. And you know we commissioned that in August of two thousand and thirteen those um, students now have are able to study, you know, later into the evening at no matter what time of year it is, you know, their light lighting is much better. Um, They used to just, they didn't have proper um, bathrooms. They just had, you know, their latrine was a hole in the ground. And, you know, now they have um, regular toilets with flushing water, they have showers, you know, so the school reported back to us that there was definitely dramatic improvement in, in hygiene. There was also um, dramatic improvements in safety, which we hadn't anticipated. By having reliable and um, and longer-lasting, if you will, lighting, um, they had fewer incidents of sexual assault because this was a high school. So these are high school-age um um, students, they had fewer incidents of sexual assault, better hygiene, and there was a dramatic improvement in their test scores in just the first year. So we really just see the tremendous impact, and you know. And so we we've done more work in Zambia, um, but I'm a big wildlife um kind of activist if you will um endangered species advocate and my husband's big on the renewable energy and we partnered with another colleague who was in the renewable energy space and we just said you know we want to have real impact Um, we were initially focused on schools but we also now just really see that intersection um where it's often indigenous communities that are living immediately in or next to kind of critically, uh, really critical um, areas of biodiversity. I I refer to as the last remaining lungs of the planet. And those communities are often um, really being threatened by fossil fuel industries, sometimes even by their own governments wanting to exploit their resources. And so we, we see so many of those communities at that intersection. And we're really focused on, you know, giving them solar power um, so that they can essentially protect themselves, protect their, their physical community, protect their culture, their way of life, protect the environment that sustains their community, and protect the environment that is important for our whole planet um, and for all of us as a whole. So, um, yeah, so that's how kind of how we've morphed, if you will, um, over the years.
0: So, here in the us, probably the number one reason why uh, most folks who, you know, say install solar panels up on their roof, you know, the number one reason that most folks would probably cite for doing that is because they're concerned about climate change, right? And it just strikes me as interesting that this the topic of climate change actually hasn't come up, you know throughout this entire conversation because there's so many when we're talk about, you know the the benefits, that these uh, solar projects um, that, that both of you are involved in have in these communities in uh, other places in the world, you know, it's not this big global crisis that everybody is concerned about, i.e. climate change. It's, you know, these, these sort of very direct, immediate benefits that you get from working with uh, uh, solar energy. Um, I, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering if, like, either you could speak to that. Like, is this something that's, like, on your mind?
2: uh... Yeah, absolutely, Matt, if I may. Um, You know, as I mentioned, you know, kind of our mission statement for Empowered by Light is that we aim to improve lives and the environment with renewable energy technologies. So we're about empowering communities, and we're about helping communities leapfrog fossil fuels. So our first microgrid project in Zambia, for example, you know, we, we made it really big, um, chose a big location that's pretty big mm-hmm. to go from distributing solar lanterns to doing a, you know, 24 kilowatt um, system with battery storage. I mean, that's a, that's a big leap. But we want to do something big because we want it to be a demonstration project to show communities in Zambia and also the government that they could literally leapfrog fossil fuel. They don't need to go through decades of fossil fuel, you know, infrastructure development like we have. They can literally go from almost nothing to having to, you know, truck in diesel, you know, to just literally being on solar. And, you know, so that's most of our projects that that's a huge component is that we are helping or we're hoping to uh, to demonstrate to the local communities and local governments, um, and, and by the as we do more and more of these, and as and more organizations do projects similar to this, that we will demonstrate to developing countries that they can leapfrog fossil fuels. That that's really one of our main intents.
0: We've reached the point of this conversation where I, I always ask what our audience can do to to help with these issues, like to get involved, right, and and to play some role in these issues that that um, both of your organizations are involved with you guys have just recently launched a a crowdsource funding campaign um, to help support this collaborative project that you have going in Chitwa National Park in Nepal Um, maybe you can talk a little bit more about about that campaign and how folks can find it and sort of what they're contributing to when They make a donation. Um, And then also, if there are any other sort of things that you could point to ways that, you know, folks who are listening to to this interview could play a role in what what you're doing.
2: Sure. Well, obviously, I think, Anya and I would appreciate it if anyone would take enough interest to just learn more about our organizations. Um, so, going to empoweredlight.org or empowergeneration.org um, to learn more. And then, obviously, we would love um, support for this next project in Chipmun National Park, um, providing uh, solar power for another ranger station. And you're right, we did just launch um, our CrowdRise campaign um, last week. Um, and so, that is through the CrowdRise uh, platform. And this is where I'm going to show my lack of technological savvy because I don't know the actual
0: URL. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and, and what I can do is I, c- I can put that link up on the show notes page uh, for this episode oh, so folks can that uh, awesome. find that pretty easily for sure.
1: And then for um, people that are Interested in in getting involved involved above just uh, giving a donation. The donation is great, and it goes towards supporting more of these collaborative projects for us. But um, we're also looking for volunteers to actually come with us to Nepal um, and do uh, one of these installations and interactions with our entrepreneurs. Um, so, if you or your company uh, are interested in participating in one of these trips. Um, Last year, we worked with a group of volunteers from a a local solar company. Um, They sent uh, two groups of 10 over for 10 days in Nepal and actually helped us do the installation work um, and interact with our entrepreneurs and uh, learn about the work that they're doing. And and it was a wonderful time. So if you're interested, um, just get in touch with, you can email me, Anya, at empowergeneration.org. Um, and uh, we will, we'll see if we can work together. That would be great.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot to both of you for uh, sharing all this really important information, um, and thanks for all of this amazing work that the two of you do. Yeah, it's been a really fascinating conversation.
2: Thank you so much for having us, Matt.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right, that was our conversation with Mora Haynes from Empowered by Light and Anya Chernev from Empower Generation. Be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode to learn more about their crowdsource campaign to raise funds for installing solar panels on ranger stations in Chitwa National Park in Nepal. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC125. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or just about any podcatcher out there. If you want to help others find the show, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.